Hey everybody, this is Ray Telsh, and this is episode 62 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone is having a great week out there. I'm really excited about this week's episode. Every once in a while, I get a guest who suggests a movie that I just absolutely can't wait to talk about, that I just fall in love with immediately, and that's certainly the case with this week's episode. Uh, the movie we are talking about this week is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and if you have not seen this movie, you owe it to yourself to remedy that as soon as you can. It is a fantastic movie, and I, I know people who have had reactions on on both sides. Some people don't like it because the film is kind of trippy and has a lot of ambiguity to it, and some people, including myself, absolutely love this movie because it is so trippy and has a lot of ambiguity to it. So that ambiguity is something that we talk about with this week's guest, who is Mal Foster of the Dimed Out podcast, and I just, I was elated when he suggested this movie and couldn't wait to talk about it, and we ended up having this fantastic conversation about the film and about our personal connections to this movie. Um, I had originally hoped to run this as the first movie of the new year because it is a very kind of rebirth, new year, new cycle type film, and it just didn't work out. But I'm really thrilled to have this conversation. We had a fantastic discussion about the movie because there is so much meat to it. There's so much to discuss, and we both had very interesting reactions to this movie based on where we were in life when we first saw it and, and where we are now. So I really hope you enjoy our conversation about it. So here we go with 2004's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So I also should preface this by saying I don't know how personal you want to get in this conversation about this. I probably will get a little personal. Oh, sure. and it's, it's absolutely no offense taken if you don't want to reveal information, um, but I probably will because this movie... Uh, it's an interesting movie for me for a couple of reasons, which I'll get into as we actually get to talking to the movie. But before we get into that, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, first and foremost, um, I appreciate that, mate, but I am an absolute open book. And yeah, we probably will get into some personal territory because this film is a very personal film for a number of reasons, um, which we'll get into. But yes, uh, my name is Mal, uh, Mal Foster, and I am the host of Dimed Out, which whenever anyone asks me what is the show about... I always struggle to give them a direct answer because we kind of cross over into different categories. But the way that I look at it is that it's a podcast basically designed to look at all the interesting and weird and fascinating aspects of life, uh, different lifestyles, different cultures um, and all sorts of just weird and wonderful things. <laughs> so so what kind of a movie person are you? Because you've picked a really interesting uh, more on the independent side type movie for us to talk about. Yeah, that's very reflective of who I am as as a sort of cinephile, I guess. I mean, I love, and I'm sure everyone that comes on the show or anyone you ask about films that has a passion for it will say, I love a little bit of everything. And it's kind of true. I do. I think every genre has its merits. Um, sometimes you are in an absolute blockbuster mood where you just need to switch off. But primarily, yeah, I am an indie film kind of person. That's really kind of what got me into my love of film, like how films are made and, and like the interest in digging into the medium, I guess, and the art form. So yeah, very much an indie film kind of person, foreign language film um, kind of guy. And yeah, just, you know, uh, a little bit of everything, but mainly I would say 
primarily my bed, my bread and butter would be indie film and, and so foreign language stuff. Gotcha. Okay, cool. I just did a foreign language film that will actually, the episode will air after this one. Uh, but it, it, it just reminds me, I don't give foreign film enough time and attention just in my personal life that there are some phenomenal foreign films out there. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that we're kind of getting to a point where they are thankfully getting a bit more um, mainstream appreciation, more sort of populist appreciation. I think definitely Parasite helped with that in, in terms of nudging people to the idea that there is just like this wonderful world of foreign language film and has been for like decades. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, it didn't hurt that Parasite was just a brilliant film on its own. Oh, sure. It just happens to be a foreign film. Right. <laughs> so I have to ask, uh, because I know you're here in the States, uh, but that's not an American accent. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. I'm, I'm from Northern England, which is probably one of the things I should have started off with when introducing myself. Yeah. So uh, I found myself coming over here just under two years ago now. Wow, you you picked the worst possible time. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I I, I know, right? <laughs> so was that for like business uh, reasons? No, that was it was to get married. Um, because my wife was and still is living over here, but she had a lot more family over here than I do um, back home, and also she'd started a career, whereas I was in a job which I honestly wasn't too heartbroken to leave. So, <laughs> you know, kind of worked out best for everyone, really. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, that's at least you've got some positive in it because <laughs> yeah. I I can't imagine coming to this country at this point in time. <laughs> oh, it's it's bizarre. I'll be honest, Rob. It's absolutely demented to to come at this point in history. Um yeah. There's there's so much. I feel like that is a separate podcast episode all of its own. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely. You know. So uh, you you said you're more independent foreign film. What are your, some of your favorite movies? Oh, okay. So it's I have favorites that are perhaps maybe not put on the scale of like greatest films of all time, but like oh, yeah. more personal merit. So, for instance, Clerks is a huge favorite of mine because it kind of showed me. And this is not to throw shade at Kevin Smith. I think enough people have done that already. But it showed me that like you can make a film. Anyone can really make a film. If the context is there, if you kind of have a sense of whereabouts. And so that opened up a can of worms, and that's definitely a personal favourite. I'm a huge fan of Richard Linklater, so the Before Trilogy is, is kind of etched in my heart um, and is almost a yearly pilgrimage at this point. Um, I have never seen one of those movies. Oh, I, man. I know I need to. I don't know why I haven't, because I know they're brilliant movies. Um, but I just have never watched any of them. All right, I'm calling it. I'm coming back on this show at some point after you've watched the first one, just the very first one, at least, and then we can kind of go in depth about that. Okay, all right, yeah. I'm good with that. Um, so, you know, and that, that actually takes us in the right direction for, you know, the podcast is called Have Not Seen This. It's about movies that were surprised when other people have not seen. What are your have not seen this movies? What are movies you have not seen that people give you a hard time about? Oh, well, see, thankfully, no one gives me a hard time about it. Um, you know, I, I've met film snobs. I've been a film snob. Um, <laughs> but thankfully, as I get older, I kind of move out of that. And I'm more in the line of like, oh, okay, if you haven't seen it, I recommend you see it. But, um, you know, I'm not going to judge you as verbally, perhaps, 
as much. And thankfully, I don't sort of keep that clientele to that degree. But there's a number of films, you know, I say that I'm a foreign language um, film fan, and I am. But there's a lot of like, classic stuff that I haven't seen, like, um, a lot of Kurosawa stuff and Ozu stuff. And, you know, a, a lot of traditionally classic foreign filmmakers that kind of set them all a lot of French new wave stuff I haven't seen um either uh, a lot of Truffaut a lot of Goddard I haven't seen but at some point but I'm trying to think something that is kind of shocking a little bit when I tell people I haven't seen it is uh Close Encounters of the Third Kind Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. See, the others, like, and it's, I guess that says something about us culturally, because the other ones you're listing, like, I have not seen as many Kurosawa films as I should. I know mm-hmm. that. I, I love the ones that I've seen, and uh, there's just one day I'm going to sit down and watch more. Um, French films have put me off, I think, for the most part. <laughs> like, I, I, I've seen some, and I tend not to like them very much. Like, yeah. I just... Their style of storytelling, it's not the, the the cinematography, it's just the style of storytelling doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. But then you get to Close Encounters and I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> that and Saving Private Ryan is another one I haven't seen, which kind of peels people's wigs back a little bit. I've I've only seen parts of Saving Private Ryan, so I can't judge you on that one. <laughs> it, it, so so it sounds like you've you've got a Spielberg deficiency, is what you've got going on. Which, yeah, which is weird because I was a kid of of like the the late eighties, early nineties. I was like an Amblin sort. I was that demographic, like a Saturday afternoon matinee, that type of thing. Like batteries not included, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I, I, much in the mold of like science fiction fantasy and wonder as a child and i loved it but there's there's like big gaps in my uh, my spielberg history that that puts us around the same age because i'm exactly that same uh that same era and those those films you listed are you know the ones that i grew up with so i mm-hmm. totally understand that well cool well let's switch gears and get into the movie you picked because there there's a lot to talk about yeah. with this one And this is 2004's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, written by Charlie Kaufman, Michelle Gondry, and Pierre Boussmouth, directed by Michelle Gondry, starring Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet, Elijah Wood, Mark Ruffalo, Kirsten Dunst, and Tom Wilkinson. Hello, I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. This is a hoax, right? I assure you, no. Is there any risk of brain damage? It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. So I always start out by asking how you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it. How do you sell it to someone to get them to watch this movie? See, I did my homework here, and I'm glad I did, because that's a really difficult question, especially with this film. So I actually came prepared <laughs> with a statement to, that really kind of encapsulates that uh, in, in my head. All right, so after Clementine, played by Kate Winslet's all-consuming relationship with Joel, played by Jim Carrey, comes to an end... She has a procedure done to erase him from her memory. When Joel finds out this, he decides to erase Clementine from his memory. During the erasing process, through practical effects and editing, the film cuts, pastes and rearranges various parts of their relationship. 
the excitement of falling in love, the warmth of finding that person, the ugly cracks that lead to heartbreak, the deep-rooted grief when the relationship ends. All of this and numerous connecting dots are blended into a distorted battle between what the mind needs and what the heart wants. That is a kick-ass answer right there. Oh my god. Boy, and you hit on so many points already. The (laughs) fact that, I mean, this is a trippy film, and so much of it is achieved through practical effects. There's, There's so little CG work done here. Now, there is some... But that's that's an important selling point because that really does make a difference in how the fil- film feels. Oh, for sure, and and that was one of my early sort of points. Like after watch, after like the emotional core, the emotional scope of the film, from a purely intellectual point, I guess, and like the part of me that was interested in how films work and how films are made, that really hit with me and resonated with me. That took me back to again uh, being a kid watching how the Death Star sequence of Star Wars was filmed on models and just oh, yeah. blowing my mind. And I was like, what? Um, it kind of took me back to that. Like when you, when you see how things are done and you can, well, you, you kind of get the impression that it is just done by hand. It just, it sort of makes my brain tinker and begin to question how on earth has Michelle Gondry pulled that off? How have they transitioned from this to that? And yeah, it's just one of the things that definitely sort of resonated deeply with me. So it, it it sounds like we were very similar in our childhoods because uh, you know I was I was a Star Wars kid I was a Spielberg kid I was all those kinds of things and occasionally especially for some of the bigger movies um, they would have TV specials on mm-hmm. that would go in depth about some of the effects and how some I mean they were really extended commercials for the film but they also were revealing behind the scenes and I like I specifically remember one. Um, that ended up coming out on the Blu-ray set with Star Wars called Classic Creatures Return of the Jedi. And it was really about monster making and like how many puppeteers it took to create the Jabba the Hutt in that and that kind of stuff. Um, And and so that really started my love of special effects and movie Mm -hmm. making and how this stuff was done. And you're right, this movie definitely uh, appeals to that part of my personality and my, my, my love of film because there are some sequences in this movie that you just go, how was that done? And you and you know how it was done, and then you learn that, no, it wasn't a split screen with Jim Carrey in two different places just filming opposite himself. It was actually Jim Carrey putting a hat on and taking it off and jumping in a seat and jumping out of the seat as the camera pivoted around. You know, it's like it almost breaks those rules of filmmaking as I learned them growing up in order to achieve a really impressive effect. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a really good way of putting it, breaking the rules. It's very anarchic in the sense that it takes a lot of conventions and, and normalized structure and just kind of throws them out the window a little bit. And yeah, like you say, when you find out that it's not um, spliced together, edited sequences, that it's it's Jim Carrey, as you say, taking a hat off and switching character, it kind of adds an extra level to to his performance in it as well as the practical effects. Yeah, and, and his performance in this film is quite possibly one of my favorite. I mm-hmm. mean, I know this this was in that era where he was trying to redefine himself as a little more of a serious actor. So you have films like The Truman Show and The Majestic and and this movie. And I think out of all of those this is probably my favorite because it's also him largely playing against type that this really is a movie with Kate Winslet playing a Jim Carrey role and Jim Carrey playing a Kate Winslet role. Wow, I've never thought of that, but yeah, actually, yeah. That's... I, 
I wish I could take credit for that, but I, I've heard that in a Kate Winslet interview and went, yes, she's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your history with this movie? When did you first discover it? How have you tried to pass it on to friends? That kind of thing. Oh, okay. So I didn't see this theatrically. Um, I came to this about a year after its initial release, about 2005, when I was just just collecting films, films that I had not seen, films that I didn't even know if I liked. I was just purchasing DVDs. I was that person for the longest time um, and with plenty of them still in the wrapping. I uh, understand that more than you know. <laughs> yeah. So I was in that phase and I was just picking stuff up and I picked this up and it, it sounded interesting. Um it didn't sound like a Jim Carrey film. Um, I didn't really know that much about Kate Winslet. I kind of knew Michelle Gondry a little bit from some of his music video um, stuff that he'd done, particularly with the White Stripes. So I was like, okay, I'll try this. I'll give it a go. No expectations. Hadn't seen a trailer. Didn't read up anything about it. Watched it. Um, and I was about, so this is about 2005. So it was, yeah, after its theatrical release on DVD. And I was... 20 and I was in my first real legit year of college um long story maybe for another show (laughs) (laughs) and I was in in the throes of like my first genuine relationship and I thought it was like the one I thought this was like my first and my forever relationship as you know a lot of people uh, do at that right. adolescent stage you're just absolutely smitten and you're like of course this is going to last forever it and doesn't it never does it no. never does <laughs> no hate to throw some horrible spoilers out there for anyone listening at that particular age but it doesn't <laughs> um so this film just it it resonated so deeply with me on on that level on that principle alone of of this going through this tumultuous but yet beautiful relationship and all the minor little details, the handcrafted notes, the souvenirs, which are part of the, the sort of storyline and, and the procedure for the mind erasing. It just, it really hit at the right time. When I had just come out of this this relationship that I, as I say, thought was my forever relationship. And uh, here is is this sort of conundrum of, do you preserve all of those beautiful memories that you had from it and that feeling Or do you kind of, as I put in my opening statement, do what the mind needs and just kind of scrub over it and move on? Yeah, that's... Yeah, I'll get into my history with this movie in a a couple of minutes, but um, it it, it kind of is one of those movies that if it hits you at the right time, uh, it has a vastly different impact than if it hits you at the wrong time, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, let's take a quick look at the critical view of this. Uh, It sits at 93% at Rotten Tomatoes. It sits at 89% at Metacritic. It was nominated the year it came out for Best Actress for Kate Winslet and also Best Screenplay, which it won. Uh, I always try to bring in a positive and a negative review, kind of give us some jumping off points, that kind of stuff. I'll start with the negative review, which comes from Stephanie Zakarik from Salon.com. Um, and this her, her she this is a, a significantly lengthy review, and I will say it's worth checking out if you're interested in seeing what she has to say. Uh, the snip that I pulled from it is the disappointment I felt at the end of Eternal Sunshine was almost crushing, simply because there were sections of it that were as daring in their emotional directness as anything I've seen in years. 
Did Kaufman or Kaufman and Gondry construct the movie as they did simply so audiences wouldn't leave the theater feeling too devastated to engage in conversation, let alone a cocktail or a cappuccino? Maybe. Yet there are moments in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that bring us as close as anyone should ever come to staring at the sun. The movie's warmth is irresistible. The risk of getting burned should have been left to us. And that kind of summarizes a lot of her problems with the movie with kind of the the secondary storylines. She really loved the story of Joel and Clementine, uh, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet's characters, but she did not like the other relationships that are featured in the film, which I'm sure we'll get to discussing here in a minute. On the positive side, I always try to pull in Roger Ebert if I can, and he didn't let me down this time. His positive review reads, Despite jumping through the deliberately disorienting hoops of its story, Eternal Sunshine has an emotional center, and that's what makes it work. Although Joel and Clementine ping-pong through various stages of romance and reality, what remains constant is the human need for love and companionship and the human compulsion to keep seeking it despite all odds. It may be true that Joel and Clementine, who seem to be such opposites, might be a good match for each other, and if and so if they keep on meeting, they will keep on falling in love, and Lacuna Inc. may have to be replaced with the Witness Protection Program. <laughs> so any thoughts on those? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, the, the negative review, I, I'm not that bad about it. I'm not too down on it because I feel like there is a valid point there. Um, you know, as much as I love this movie, there is, uh, I, I understand where they're coming from. There is like a, an emotional ambiguity, particularly towards the end. You know, you, you presume that this is just an endless cycle and it's a loop. And it's a weird mix because there's a real sense of optimism because you do feel like these are two people that despite their jarring differences are very compatible. But at the same time, because of their jarring differences and because of the sort of extremities of each end of their personality spectrum, they're really not compatible. So it's it kind of gives with one hand and takes away with the other. But I think that's what makes it, especially like watching it again now, um, now I'm past that sort of adolescent stage of first discovering it and I've been through relationships and, and what have you, I kind of see the, the more complexity to it there's more density in in its sort of emotional framework so yeah i understand uh that sort of viewpoint it is a little bit dour at times <laughs> and it does end on a note which is kind of like mm, am i supposed to be happy that it's alluding that they're going to get back together or is is it is this a bad thing are they just ending up for more um destruction within themselves <laughs> all right i'm going to do something i don't normally do i'm going to pull in a third review Oh, uh, okay. And this one, re- this one reads, when I first saw this movie in theaters, I didn't like it as much as I wanted to. I was very interested in the concept behind the movie, but something didn't click with me. I wanted the movie to be better than it was. Now that it's on DVD and I've seen it again, I can gladly say I was wrong. I don't know if I was just in a different mental or emotional state the first time I saw it, or if the film's intricately detailed emotions just required a second viewing. Possibly even, ironic given the film's premise, I just remember it differently than it actually is. Hmm. Whatever it was... This film is now what I wanted it to be, and I found myself very strongly connected with the characters, especially the romance between Joel and Clementine. See, what this film reminds us of is that period in a relationship where being in love has nothing wrong with it, where everything is fresh and new before familiarity sets in. It shows us how a person who was so angry with his lover that he decided to erase her can remember how much he loved that person and how deep down inside he never wants to let her completely go. And that was written by me. Whoa, really? (laughs) Yeah. The first time I saw this movie, which was in theaters, I did not like it. 
And I could not tell you a year later when I reviewed it on DVD, that was back when I was writing for Cinema Blend, and mm. I cannot tell you now why I didn't like it the first time I saw it, but I distinctly remember not liking it. And then the second time I saw it, um, it just really connected with me, and I, I fell in love with it, and I've, I've watched it several times since then. And I, I think what I really loved about it the second time I, I think I was a, a little more optimistic and I saw this as exactly kind of what Ebert saw, which is these are two characters who are made for each other. They may be opposites, but despite having each of their respective memories wiped, they find each other again. And it's, it's as if it was fate. It's as if it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a little more cynical now. <laughs> <laughs> and now I can't help but wonder whether it is that romantic idea of meant to be or whether it is that they're doomed to repeat this endless cycle where they end it by erasing everything that they learned and then they have to go through it again. And it's almost hell. <laughs> so what do you think? Are you a romantic or a cynic? <laughs> I think it's really interesting because I think, um, you know, I came to it from a similar place to you did uh, on your second viewing. Um, first viewing, I loved it. I kind of jump straight to the loving stage. I can understand why a lot of people might be put off by this because there are, there are a number of trippy factors and, and Charlie Kaufman in his very nature is sort of polarizing. Um, and this is definitely one of his most polarizing films, I think. <laughs> um, yes. Because I have met people that just cannot stand this film and I don't get angry. Really? With them. Yeah. And I, I don't get angry with them. I don't get upset with them. I don't judge them. I'm just like, oh, okay, because of, because of how sort of raw, the emotional aspect of it is, but also how dense it is. And, and as I say, when you watch it from an, uh, a later perspective with perspective of your own as an adult, you do see the complexities. You do see the, the sort of density, the ambiguity, especially of the ending. I can understand why people wouldn't like it, but yeah, I, I first watched this with very sort of green uh, romantic eyes, this whole notion of, as you say, these are people that are perfect for each other. They're just meant to be. It's meant. It's fate. It's kismet. Of course, they're going to meet each other. That's just the way the universe has designed their their path for them. And there is still definitely a part of me that latches onto that. But as you say, I'm also a little bit more cynical. And <laughs> and now watching it again, I do. Ah, there's a part of me which is kind of like, oh, but guys, really. Mm, do you want to? Because, you know, you hate them at some point and you're going to hate them again at another point. And how many times do you need to go through this? Uh, how many times does your heart need to go through this? But at the same time, the the sort of young uh, romantic part of me is is pulling away. It's it's weird. I do find it a much more dimensional, multi-layered watch now because I did go in straight blinkered with the, the sort of lovely, sweeping, naive, romantic optimism of uh, being a young man. And now that I've added some years to my clock, it's kind of like, yeah, it's it's not all rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's one of the things I love about this movie is the fact that I've seen it. I mean, obviously, I've seen it more than three times, but I've seen it at three different periods of my life where I had a different response to it. 
And I don't think any of those responses are wrong. Mm -hmm. I think there is room for interpretation to say, yes, this is fate. This is kismet. This is romance. This is that their, their love will forever go on. And you have to admit the, uh, the, the, you know, everybody loves the notebook and the, I'm just a guy looking at a girl asking, you know, whatever that line is. I've never seen the notebook, so I'm sure I got the line wrong, but you know it when you hear it. And I love that this movie's response to that is, I'm not a concept. I'm just a fucked up girl trying to make her own, find her own way. Uh-huh. You know, that that's like, that to me is a little more realistic, but it's still, th- th- there, there is that idea. But I also don't think there's anything wrong with the interpretation that they're doomed, that they're just screwed for the rest of their life. They're going to keep repeating this cycle. I mean, assuming Lacuna stays in business <laughs> after the events <laughs> of this movie. Yeah, you don't really hold out much hope for their future business plan. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I but I also I mean it's like a lot of the movie reminds you about the good in their relationship. That that's what Joel keeps visiting in his memories and keeps trying to clutch onto when uh, it's being erased from his mind and he's clutching onto the good. And even the, the version of Clementine that we see in his memories is this idyllic female. I mean, she's coming up with the solution of hide me in a memory that they can't get to and that kind of stuff, but she's not real. She's the memory version from the good memories. Mm-hmm. And you turn around and you look at the moment that they broke up she comes home drunk and says, you know, I know what's worrying you is you're wondering to yourself if I fucked someone. And he says, no, see, the thing is, Clem, I, I know you fucked someone. That's how you get people to like you. And it's like that. I, I love that they present that early in the film because that needs to hang over everything else. That's where the relationship ended up. Oh, yeah. They need to establish that dynamic pretty early on because otherwise it is it is just very rose colored in its in its optics and it kind of does just push forth nothing but like that sweet um these just perfectly matched lovers who need to be together uh, when when the truth is um as we've touched on is it is a lot more prickly than that especially when you dive into something pretty as toxic as that that's a pretty toxic aspect of their relationship to just throw in there yeah oh yeah and and we all have those too i mean i'm 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 trying to imagine myself seeing this in the midst of that really first strong relationship like you were and not really having the baggage of those moments yet. Mm-hmm. And I, I could almost imagine you kind of watching that going, well, that would never happen. And then, you know, <laughs> yeah. fast forward 10 years being like, yeah, I had a moment like that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what lends itself to being such a versatile film is because if you have caught it at the age that we did, which is, I think is the optimal time to, to first watch this film. Obviously some people don't have a choice, you know, they've gone so many years without scene but i think yeah if you jump into it at that age you do have that experience but it does change it changes and the film stays the same but you just see hidden layers and depths that you maybe didn't catch the first viewing second viewing what have you depending on what stage of, of your life you're in I, I i don't know that i agree with you 100 i do think gondry may just re-edit the film and put it out every couple of years as a changed film just to screw with audience members <laughs> I, I wouldn't put it past him I'll be honest. <laughs> he seems the type. So yes, yeah, so I love the the layout of this film. Um, I, I love the way it kind of builds a mystery that we meet the characters before. Well, we meet the characters 
at, at the beginning and it turns out that that's actually at the end that the first, you know, 15 minutes of this movie actually take place after the events of the rest of the movie. Um, and I, I think that's brilliant. And especially then, because it gives us the mystery of who is this other guy as we get into Joel's memories and him going like to visit her after they broke up at Barnes and Noble. And there's this other guy and the, the, the way they hide his face and they try to hide his identity. Um, and I, I don't think they, I think they realized really quickly they couldn't keep that up for long because they don't hold it out for too long, but just, there is a mystery to it. The first time you watch it, watching it unfold because you're being given events out of sequence. Yeah, absolutely. I think outside of the editing and the sort of reimagined, altered versions of memories, I think the the timeline, the the sort of structure, the non very non linear structure of the film, and and the pacing of it really, really sort of works in the film's favour. Uh, because as you say, there is a sort of mystery quality to it. There is a mystery element of okay, you're kind of figuring out who this person is, how they know this person, do they know this person, and then you kind of begin to just sort of find yourself folding through time rather than kind of jumping from point a to c you kind of go all around but it works in in a way that keeps you especially on first view in intrigued as to what the hell is actually happening here and at what stage are we at and i love that i love the fact that it doesn't just jump from one point to another that it merges them and it's sort of like as i put in my initial description it's kind of like a cut and paste of a timeline and and not everything is is put into a particular order and and i think that fits with the whole idea of remembering a relationship because you don't remember relationships in linear order you remember them when you see certain things or you hear a certain song or you go to a certain place and you kind of jump all over your own individual timeline so it makes sense that something of this this nature in terms of its theme is is represented in that way. Yeah, one of the the my favorite transitions in this movie with all of its editing and everything is that scene where he's at the Barnes and Noble. Oh yeah. And he leaves and as he's walking towards the camera to leave and we're dollying back, you know, the lights are shutting off in the background kind of evidence that this memory is already starting to be affected and he walks through the doorway and then he's there in the living room of his friend's house. I absolutely love that. I he just that. walks through the doorway and sits down on the staircase in one continuous shot. And it's like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Yeah, I put that in my notes to mention. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's <laughs> one of my favorite sequences. And it's so smooth. It's not jarring whatsoever. And it just, it has like a real sort of ethereal sequence, uh, like an ethereal nature to the sequence. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. But you're, I mean, you're right. It is. I like the cut and paste analogy because then that even makes sense with, you know, it's cut and paste. Here's the memory, but now he's in a different outfit or he's standing in a different place or, you know, that that's a really good way of putting it. The the cut and paste concept. I kind of like that a lot. I think it really (laughs) sort of screws around with the integrity of the memories as well. And I love one of my favorite things about the film, especially like as to go back to what I was saying before watching it, later on with a sort of more appreciate like a deeper appreciation of of just like narrative structures and and storytelling and film work is is the sort of manipulation of memories how they will be there in the present tense of the memory of this thing that happened say six months ago talking within the tense of six months ago and then switch so naturally to (laughs) like the, the, the the present tense of now remembering it yeah 
Well, and then Gondry messes with it even more as the memories start to degrade. So, like, you have the scene in the, the doctor's office where they're first, you know, quizzing him on the different things, the different artifacts he's pulled from the relationship. And first of all, going through your house and picking up everything that would be associated with that relationship would be such a trying process. And I think yeah. it's funny that... You know, when he goes back to the doctor's office, he has two garbage bags full of stuff. And there's other people with like a cardboard box of stuff, you know, <laughs> it's like, but, you know, they're, they're quizzing him and we see that when it first plays out and then we see it as a memory and then we see it as a, a kind of a degraded memory where they don't have faces and everything's getting foggy. I mean, I love the lighting in this movie as far as the use of spotlight and, and fading stuff out and that kind of stuff. I mean, it just, it really, the, the visual style really builds that sense of memory degrading, which also, you know, you go, you go analog instead of digital that happens with cut and paste. If you were, when you were copying something in analog, it degraded over time. So that kind of like that idea that our memories are analog and, and will do that because they do. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's, it's a real sort of, I, I don't know if it was deliberately in, intended to kind of reflect that, but it does kind of reflect the, the sort of aging process of, a, of, of like a 35 millimeter film or audio tape that has been left for so long that will eventually, over time, in bad conditions, degrade and won't be as clear, won't be as defined as it was previously or as it was when you first experienced it. Um, and I think that really sort of fits into this there's a i don't know if you're familiar there's a composer called william Bazinski who did uh, a series of things called the disintegration loops and basically it's it's a looped piece of melody uh, that has warped and degraded over time and to the point where it slows and it bends out of focus and it stretches the, the tempo to become something completely different and i kind of feel like this is on a similar track uh, and again, it kind of reflects like human memory, particularly of uh, memories with relationships and people. You know, you you kind of see things in different lights the further you are away from it. The, the sort of more time has sort of warped your perception of what things were. And I think that really comes across, as you say, with the lighting and with the soundscape in this film. Oh, yeah, especially with the soundscape. I, I'm not familiar with that composer, but I'm going to have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, it's fascinating. Really well, you made the comment you weren't sure whether how intentional it was, but at the same time, I keep thinking, you know, Gondry ends up doing um, Be Kind, Rewind, mm -hmm. which is where they're they're recording. Basically, they accidentally erase every video in a video store, and so they're having to record new versions. And uh, he, he definitely played with kind of effects of tape quality there. So I, I kind of feel like it was an intentional approach to it. Mm. I, I would I would say it probably is. Um, given his, his body of work and particularly that film, um, which I think is very <laughs> underrated. I just want to say. I haven't seen it all. I'm just, I'm familiar ah. with it, but I need to watch it. It's, it's somehow uh, passed me by, which is it's... weird because it became a big trend to then do that, that kind of low budget recreation of a movie effect became such a big trend on YouTube for a while. It's, it's not like the greatest film, but it's definitely, I think if you have any sort of interest or just genuine love for film, I think you'll find something in there because it is pretty much just like an, a love letter to, to, to like films throughout different genres and, and periods. And it's just, it's just a sweet film. Let's skip the foreplay. Murder. You want to talk about it. Hear about all kinds of 
nasty things. Sex, torture, madness, dismemberment. And why, more than anything, you want to know why. Well, dear listener, you ain't never had a friend like me. Tune in to Murder Was the Case, featuring author and investigative criminologist Lee Meller. Sometimes solo, often with guests, always horrifically entertaining. Listen to Murder Was the Case on iTunes, Google Play, or go to murderwasthecase.podbean.com. It's gonna be sick. So one of the lines that stood out to me, I think it stands out to me every time I watch this movie, before we get into the memories, when we're in the beginning of the movie, which is actually the end of the movie, is Joel's line about why do I fall in love with every woman I see who shows me the least bit of attention? Yeah, I I, I recently watched that again this week in preparation for that. And that's weird because that's one of the things that hit me. And I was like... That's not the case now, but I think, yeah, that's part of, of what 20-year-old me that watched this film for the first time identified <laughs> with. I was like, damn, okay, now you've got me movie. <laughs> so so let me ask you this, uh, being a little older, a little wiser, a little more perspective now, would you, would you go through the process? That is the question. Um, no, I don't think I would. I think... If you were to ask me when I was younger, then I probably hastily would have said yes, because you just want to get through that heartache. You want to get through that pain as quickly as possible and as cleanly as possible. Um, But being a little bit older, being a little bit wiser, having gone through it and, you know, felt the sting of it and also reaping the benefits that come from it as well, from the perspective that you gain the insight into your relationships with other people and yourself. Um, no, I wouldn't. I think it's necessary as, as hard as it is to go through like a, a really, really intense breakup for an all consuming relationship. I think it's, it's necessary. We gain stuff from it. Yeah. And, and what's interesting to me is I, I kind of think about that the opposite from what I think a, a normal person would think like romantic me looking at this movie going, they were made to be together. They found each other again, despite this. Uh, I, I think at that time period, yes, I, I would have undergone the procedure. There, there was at least one relationship that I would be happy to have been erased from, mm-hmm. but cynical me who says they're doomed says that's part of why we need to not erase them is so that we aren't doomed so that we do learn from our mistakes and our errors and all that kind of stuff. And exactly what you just said is there's, there's perspective, if nothing else to be gained from that, uh, which, you know, Joel and and Clementine don't necessarily get, although (laughs) what a doomed way to start a new relationship by learning that you have deleted each other in a previous relationship. (laughs) Maybe though, it's the healthiest way you get all of the ugliness out. And then granted, it's a bit of an uphill climb, um, like an ascension over a great big awkward speed bump at the start of your relationship. But once you've cleared that hurdle, I suppose it's a lot easier, I guess. I I don't even know how they would make it work. And that's not something I had thought about really before. But like when she's insistent that he keep the audio tape going, 
because it's it's only fair mm-hmm. uh, because he got to hear hers. I'm thinking, well, first of all, he threw you out of the car before he got to hear all of yours. And he starts talking about how s- the sex wasn't good and how she thinks she can change her entire personality with the color of her hair. And I'm just like, man, this is I would not stick around for this relationship. I would not want this to go anywhere if I knew this from the get go. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is kind of a bit off-putting, especially, as you say, listening to it in his kitchen. It's just kind of like, it's already awkward to begin with this situation, but finding out the things that you find out from somebody that, in, in from your perspective, as far as you know, from your own memory, you've just met. Yeah, I don't know how you'd get over that. <laughs> but I think that's what uh, it makes it so ambiguous towards the end, is it's not clear. It's It's hinted at. That you know they're gonna get past it, or they're gonna at least try. But I I love the ending of the film in the sense that you have that shot in the corridor, and then obviously it cuts to the snowy beach, but it just leaves it kind of wide open to your interpretation. And I know that a lot of people are on the fence with sort of ambiguous endings, but I I'm, I'm a sucker for an ambiguous ending because I just oh, love me too. I love the fact that you're given enough in terms of everything you've seen before to draw your own conclusion. I think it really values filmmakers and storytellers that that use that approach i think they value their audience to be smart enough and uh, emotionally in tune enough with the material they've been presented to draw their own conclusion and so i love that i love the fact that yeah you've got this this real huge mountain to climb over and it's up to you to decide whether they actually do it or not yeah, I, I I like um I, I like how you put that about tr- you know having trust in their audience. Uh, for me, it's always been a sense of character that the, that if you really create a um a, a complex a deep character, then their purpose goes beyond this single story. I want the idea that they continue on unless they die. Obviously, uh, I want the idea that they continue on. That maybe there are more stories with that character, and we just don't get to be a part of that. Uh, so I've always I have always loved characters that go beyond the story. But ambiguous endings are. I mean, I was, I'm an, I'm an English major. I, I love ambiguity. That's where I have my, you know, my bread and butter from. So, uh, yeah, I, and I, and I know there are people out there who want the ending spelled out and wrapped up with a nice little bow, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> no, I think, but I think you have to earn it. I think you have to put the, the work into your characters and to the, to the singular narrative that you've told at that time for it to work. But yeah, absolutely. I will take an ambiguous ending any day. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the other characters beyond Joel and, and Clementine, because we do have this B story um, slash C story, if you will, which is part of what that one, the negative review was kind of talking about not liking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess let's start with Patrick. Um, Patrick shows up at the very beginning, which again is the end, just asking Joel if he can help him. And we as the audience are going, what What does he mean? And it, ultimately, it is revealed that Patrick was part of the team that wiped Clementine's memory. And looking at her, he fell in love with her. He stole a pair of her panties and then went and asked her out, but has kept all of Joel's stuff, which he is using as kind of a means to woo her. So he knows the right thing to say or the right thing to do, or there's a gift Joel didn't get to give her that he gives her. Um, And this certainly starts, it's not the only, but it starts the ethical question of what they're doing. Oh, for sure. 
So how how do you where do you stand on that? I guess is the first question. Uh, <laughs> not yeah. not that they, it doesn't seem to be a very dynamic question. There's kind of a right and wrong answer to this one, I guess. Yeah, the the, the Patrick storyline is is interesting. Um, it's not necessary uh, to the story. I honestly feel like it's something that could have been left out. But at the same time, I I, I have to question whether or not the film as it, as a whole would be as complete as it is if it didn't have it in there. Because there is a question of ethics behind Lacuna. And what they're doing, and there's definitely, well, it's not even a question, as you say. There's a right and a wrong approach to what Patrick's doing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's basically criminal what the man's doing on many fronts: identity fraud, theft, yeah. basic stalking. Um, <laughs> he he would know what's in the stalker book. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but it's. I think outside of that, outside of the ethical questions about what they're doing, um, which is an interesting side strand to to the whole story, it's it's an interesting comment on how insecurity can play a part in new relationships and how when you enter a new relationship, um, I'm speaking from my perspective, I guess not everybody's, it's not a universal viewpoint, but you kind of have this sense of comparison you know, am I going to measure up to who they went out with last? Am I going to be the person that they want to be with? Am I the right fit for that person? And it's a bit of an extreme touch on it, for sure. I mean, there's a point where he's he's literally, like, <laughs> using a, a, a page from Joel's journal as, like, a cheat sheet in person. As a script, yeah. Yeah, as, yeah exactly, as a script as to who to be. But I think... Um, it, it does kind of have an interesting commentary on the sense of identity. Uh, you know, obviously memory is, is a huge thematic point within the film, but identity as a whole is also something that's very sort of at the centre of, of this film. And, and as, as creepy as Patrick is and as questionable as the, the need for that sort of, as you say, C storyline is, I think it does leave some interesting questions on the identity uh, perspective of entering a new relationship for sure. Well, and that's a really good point. You know, how are you going to measure up? And on one hand, it makes sense. You know, this relationship was good. She loved him. Let me use that information to make her love me. On the other hand, he forgets the part that the whole reason she's there is because the relationship didn't end up successful. So it's almost like this fatal flaw to his plan. Yeah. It's a, it's a lack of uh, foresight on Patrick's part, for sure, <laughs> as well as ethics. But it's also just creepy as hell. I love, this is Elijah Wood playing this character, and I always forget that he's in this movie. Because I just, I think of this movie, and I think of uh, uh, Jim Carrey and uh, Kate Winslet. That's it. Mm-hmm. And then I forget, oh yeah, Elijah Wood is kind of a pivotal character in this. And then... You get into the other storyline, which are is the scientists behind this, which is played by um, Mark Ruffalo and Tom Wilkinson, and, and then their their secretary, played by Kirsten Dunst, and how there's this odd thing there that you know, as we experience it as the audience, Patrick and Stan, played by Mark Ruffalo, they go to Jim, Jim Carrey character's house to do this operation and the ethics immediately come into question because they're popping open beers. They're partying. They, they invite Mary, the receptionist over. And it turns out that Mark Stan and Mary have a relationship going and they're smoking pot and they're breaking into his liquor cabinet. And it's like this whole ethical question about their behavior while Joel is unconscious there, you know, he's having this procedure done. He's having his memory wiped. He's having, what did they call it? Brain damage. 
<laughs> they yeah. said the operation is essentially brain damage. They're doing a controlled brain damage on this guy while they're drinking and getting high and bouncing around on the bed around him and that kind of stuff. It That introduces the ethical question. And then when something goes wrong, they call in their boss, played by Tom Wilkinson, and it turns out he and Mary have had an affair in the past and she doesn't remember it. Yeah, which I think is is such a great irony to the film because Mary is is his biggest supporter and she she just has this sense of idolatry towards him Tom Wilkinson's character and yet she's completely oblivious to what has happened to basically the the fact that she's basically been cast aside well yeah i mean the the wife's what what is the the wife's line to him is uh, you can have him you did yeah and i didn't see it this time but i had had the impression on previous viewings that there had been affairs and memory wipes plural right that's that's the impression i got watching it again this time and it's something i hadn't sort of picked upon but yeah it's definitely alluded to that this is this is not the first time that this has happened that yeah like joel and clementine those two characters just somehow keep on finding themselves magnetized to each other for whatever reason and it almost makes you wonder how they undergo the the memory wipe on mary because this is where she works. So do they just, do they have a way to, I mean, they're obviously not erasing the doctor from her memory altogether. Right. They're just wiping the affair, which would mean that her feelings of idolatry and respect and stuff would stay there, which is just going to fuel the, the, again, it's kind of that doomed cycle is she didn't learn anything because in her mind, she just loves him. She just uh, idolizes him and she wants to act on that. And she doesn't remember that she did act on it and it didn't turn out well. So here we go again. I think that whole storyline is actually a real good reinforcement behind the idea that, uh, and, it, and it's, it's primarily pushed by the, the storyline of, of Joel and Clementine, but this really kind of reinforces the idea that uh, the heart really kind of overrides mental intellect you know you can get rid of these memories but if you spend time with this person if you in that proximity of that person then whatever it is that you felt in the first place is going to return regardless of how many times you have your brain wiped yeah well so and that does i mean that reiterates both interpretations of yes it's meant to be but also Mm -hmm. it's doomed because you don't learn that that shouldn't happen so it's it's kind of reiterates both ideas yeah, it's it, again. It's this strange dichotomy that you don't really see until I guess you reach a certain point in your own life where you do see the sort of the duality of it of, of it being this wonderful, whimsical, you know, sort of meant to be romance. But at the same time, it's it's like the heart can be a very cruel thing. <laughs> I did find uh, to to kind of echo the negative review there a little bit. I did find the relationship between Howard and Mary a little awkward because in the story, Howard comes to the rescue when they're having problems with this procedure and then things are running smoothly. So um, Mark Ruffalo's character goes, well, you seem to have things under control here. I'm just going to step out for some fresh air. And it's like, that was just kind of awkwardly handled. It's a necessary step in order to get the two alone so that you can learn about their, their relationship and their past but it's kind of awkwardly handled. And I think that's one of the things that triggered what the negative review was saying about these secondary storylines not being quite as clean. Yeah, definitely. Especially with um, Mark Ruffalo's character, Stan, you get the impression that he knows more than he admits to. Do you think him. so? 
Yeah. Because he, he tells her he doesn't. He tells her that he did not know about it and that he saw the only... Th- she said, you didn't think anything? He said, well, I had a suspicion once. I saw you all talking out by your car mm-hmm. and you looked happy but with a secret. But that's as far as he goes. I feel like he does know more and I feel like he's living in a sense of optimism that, okay, she's had the procedure Um and hopefully that's it. Hopefully, you know, she won't be doomed to repeat the same mistakes and that the same pattern won't formulate again. That's my impression. I feel like he knows a lot more than is is actually admitted to or alluded to. But again, well, I, going into I, the idea of degraded memories, that could be, you know, I don't know how much that is, is Gondry playing with the audience a little bit. Well, and it's also, uh, I, I don't think it's... An- an unfair prediction or or, or assessment to make because he tells her this, but he also has shown us over the course of the movie that he does not have the most ethical background either. Even though he gives Patrick a hard time Mm -hmm. for trying to pursue a relationship with Clementine, he is drinking and smoking and he's happy when Patrick leaves so he can have sex with his girlfriend right next to this patient. (laughs) I mean, the the patient is there having this procedure and they're getting naked and dancing around and smoking pot. And I mean, he's shown he's not the most ethically strong character. So could he lie about how much he knows? Absolutely. Yeah. And I I do think that's intentionally left ambiguous as well. Yeah, it's I mean, the whole behavior within Joel's apartment isn't that surprising to me, um, considering they've already taken that ethical leap. (laughs) <laughs> to, to, to erase memories from somebody's brain. It's like, yeah, of course, yeah. This guy's doing absolutely berating his liquor cabinet and dancing around in his underwear. Why not? All right, one more thing I wanted to ask you about, because I caught it this time, which is when we see Joel and Clementine uh, meet at the beginning of the movie, which, again, is the end of the story, mm-hmm. she introduces herself as Clementine and says, you know, don't make fun of my name. No, you wouldn't do that. I can tell. When we see them towards the end of the movie actually meet for the first time, he does sing the Oh My Darling, Oh My Darling, Oh My Darling Clementine, and he says that Huckleberry Hound was one of his favorite dolls as a kid. So is he being nice at the beginning of the movie? Oh, there's that word, nice. Um, (laughs) Or did the operation damage his memories more than intended? Because think, he seems absolutely vague about what who Huckleberry Hound is when we when we first see them meet. I think you're definitely onto something. I think perhaps that there was more of, of an evasive uh, procedure. That, I mean, because you you think about Clementine trying to hide herself within his childhood memories, it does raise the question of like in their attempts to get rid of her whilst in those memories, have they sort of taken out some of his childhood memories too, including his Huckleberry Hound doll. <laughs> all right man what have we not talked about with this movie that you want to make sure we get in um john bryan's score oh I th- yes i think as a whole john bryan is um kind of underrated as a composer i think i know he's got a lot of people that generally love what he does and, and rightfully so but when it comes to sort of mentioning sort of great i want to say contemporary film composers i think he gets left out of the equation quite a bit and this is easily one of if not my favorite john bryan uh, soundtracks and scores uh, I, I think just it not only creates as he does with so many of the films he's worked on just a, a real feel and tone for the the film both in its its tonal presence as a story but it's it's thematic core as well he just manages to just 
just I don't know, just find the essence of what the film is about and sort of uh, extract that and, and portray it within his his compositions. But it's just it's it's just wonderful. It really taps in, especially with some of the sort of weird effects that are going on in it. I think it just really sort of heightens the film up another notch. Yeah, and one of the things I hadn't noticed, um, and I was when I was reading up on the movie to prepare for this, is the that opening scene with Joel and Clementine on the train. Um, the original intention was for it to be this awkward, staggered conversation, which it is, mm-hmm. and to have music fill the gaps. And then they watched it and realized they wanted to take a different approach. And so if you watch it, the music plays while Joel and Clementine are talking. Yeah. And then the gaps are made even more obvious by the lack of talking or music. Mm-hmm. And I had never really noticed that before, but I was like, that's a brilliant approach to take to creating the mood of the scene. Absolutely, because you're just left with that empty space, you know, yep. and, and the music itself is is representative of, of what is actually going on with the characters. It's kind of like an, an underline between the underneath the dialogue um, and then you, you strip that out and it's just, yeah, as you say, it's just that sort of awkward air of silence, which just makes mm. it even more prominent. All right, man, before we go, got a couple of quick little games to do. Um, The first up is The Algorithm Says. This is a list of other movies that various algorithms recommend because you like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So this is kind of a lightning round of responses. Do you like these movies? Do you not like these movies? Do you not understand why they would show up on an algorithm connected to this movie? That kind of thing, okay? Okay, all right. All right, first up, The Truman Show. Yeah, it's... It's better than I originally thought. I wasn't too keen on it at first, on first viewing. But again, weirdly enough, with uh, older perspective, yeah, you can kind of see that that film was ahead of its time. Yeah. All right. Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of on the fence with that. I feel like it's good, but I feel like it has a tendency to be uh, overrated a touch. I have not seen it. How do you think it's connected to this film? I don't actually know. Character study? Maybe. Maybe. Is it an independent film? I didn't think it was. It's, um, oh, God, who 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 made that now? Oh, you would ask me when I closed that tab. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on um, a second. There we go. I, I, uh, Gus Van Sant. That's right, yeah. Okay, maybe that's it then. Maybe it's the, the Gus Van Sant independent route. Um, I know that um, Affleck and, and Damon uh, wrote the script. Yes, um, won an Oscar for it. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's it. I think maybe just character study and and from an independent point. Okay. Perhaps. All right. Requiem for a dream. Oh well. Okay. Um. <laughs> yes and no. Yes, in the sense that that is also a very trippy film, but um, tonally, it's 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 a much a much darker approach um, <laughs> than this. <laughs> yeah. I feel like because there's there's a sense of joy and optimism and and like sweetness and you know in in sunshine okay. not requiem there's yeah, not, I was that say, in Re- not in requiem yeah, yeah no, requiem not... is kind of life is shit <laughs> yeah pretty much it's it's just like a hammer of bleak hitting you in the face several times um, yeah I I, I no I, I I don't know like I'm back and forth on that I can kind of see the correlations and the parallels but at the same time no. <laughs> Okay. Flip side tonally, um, Amelie. Um, yeah, I guess, because it's whimsy. Yeah. <laughs> it's got whimsy in it. And it's a little trippy in places. It is a little trippy in places, yeah. Um, and also French. So, yeah, I okay. suppose. All right, Fight Club. Ooh, no, what? 
No. No. I mean, yes, if 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 it's related directly to Requiem for a Dream, absolutely, those two probably go hand in hand quite well. Not as a double feature, because no one wants their evening completely ruined. Um, I mean, I love both films, but not together. Okay. That's, that's asking too much of, of everything. All right. A Beautiful Mind. Um, n- no, no. I mean, other than, than like the mental capacity that's touched upon in terms of memory and, and intellectual ability. Uh, no, I don't really see how that's related. Okay. I, I see. I kind of am going at more from the questioning reality kind of thing of what okay, is real, yeah. what is real in Joel's memories and what isn't, and that's kind of one of the ideas of a beautiful mind. But that's right, and and the next film as well. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. Um, but yeah, that that was the connection I came up with. Yeah, doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> no, but I, I can kind of see where you're coming from a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Shutter Island. <laughs> <laughs> Um, other than what you just said, no. Other than the the, the questioning of, of perception and what's real, no. I <laughs> they they both do have Mark Ruffalo in them. That's true. Shutter <laughs> Island doesn't have him dancing in his underwear though. So no, no. That would right. take that film to a different level. <laughs> Her. Yes, absolutely. Um, I can absolutely see that. And yeah, that's a direct link. That's a direct link um, in a number of ways, thematically. Um, it's it's a general approach, but also that's like another one of my favorite films. So I'm glad that that's been linked in there. I just revisited that one a couple of weeks ago and it's such a brilliant film. I had forgotten yeah. just how... I, I also think tonally, as far as like the visuals, it's a very sad aesthetic for both films. Mm-hmm. Okay, Punch Drunk Love. Yes. Yeah, I, I, w- I would say that there's definitely a link there. Um, the idea of uh, unusual um, romance, I guess, unusual sort of characteristics finding a mutual point, um, un- unusual circumstances, and like a sort of abstract look at relationships, for sure. Okay. That's another one on this list that I have not seen yet. Oh, you need to. It's good. And then lastly, Memento. Um, yeah, because obviously the memory thing, isn't it? Yeah, and and they're both independent, came out around the same era, so I think that's part of it, too. That's true, yeah, yeah, about the same time. Yeah, brilliant film. All right, we always end with a pop quiz of four multiple-choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? Sure. All right, number one, according to Jim Carrey, he was going through a depressive state when he first met director Michelle Gondry about this project. Perfect for the character of Joel. According to Carrie, how did Gondry respond to this news? He told him not to get better. <laughs> he did. He said, you are so broken, please don't get well. He yeah. did. <laughs> I mean, one, is it's a great great way to get what you want from your artistic project, but it's a bit of a shitty humanistic standpoint. Well, and that's what Carrie said, is that tells you how fucked up this industry is. So. <laughs> All right, number two. Several ideas made their way into the script, but not the final film, which was not an idea that was originally planned for the film. A, Clementine shown as an older woman who had had the procedure to remove Joel numerous times. B, Joel has a one-night stand with his ex-girlfriend Naomi. C, Joel gets mail that his friends Rob and Carrie are each having each other wiped from their respective memories before he learns about his own procedure. Or D, Mary discovers that not only has she had her memory wiped several times, but Howard made her get an abortion prior to one of the procedures. I'm going to go A, older Kate Winslet. 
Actually, that was in the original script. It was huh. a bookend of her older at the beginning and end of the movie, and you would actually have had a message from Joel on the recording on on her uh, voicemail that they were deleting as soon as it was recorded because she was asleep having the procedure. Huh. Um, that happened. the The one night stand with Naomi happened. They actually had an actress cast for that part, and Mary discovering that she had had an abortion was in the original script as well. Yeah, I I, did, I went um against the Naomi thing because I know that she's featured in a number of deleted scenes. So yes. that that was my my logic on that. Yeah, yeah, so it was the Rob and Carrie having each other wiped. Which, by the way, David Cross as Rob, great casting. Oh yeah, brief little cameo See, appearance. I'm surprised that was that was not included because they seem like they're on the verge of having each other wiped out at points in that film. Yeah, well, it wasn't in anything I could find. <laughs> All right, number three, alternate casting. As is usual for Hollywood productions, quite a few people were considered for some of the film's leading roles, which is not an actual piece of casting that could have happened. A, Nicolas Cage as Joel. Oh, God. B, Seth Rogen as Patrick. C, Patrick Stewart as Howard. Or D, <laughs> either Nicole Kidman or Catherine Zeta-Jones for Clementine. Oh, as much as, as, as in an alternative universe, I'd love to see Nick Cage play Joel just out of morbid curiosity. Um, I'm going to have to say that's that's not the one. No, actually, Gondry wanted Cage to play the part, but he was burned out. Wow. <laughs> uh, Seth Rogen did audition for Patrick and the studio pressured Gondry to get an Oscar winner for Clementine and Kate Winslet thankfully won an Oscar. And so she was at the top of the list. The other people who won Oscars that year were Nicole Kidman and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Mm. So deduction is that one of them was the other one that they wanted. Uh, Patrick Stewart was not considered for any role in the movie. That I'm aware of. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't really see. I, I can't really see Nick Cage in it either. But I was just, you know, hoping. <laughs> All right, last one. The, hopefully, this one's an easy one compared to the others. Uh, the poem from which the film gets its name is quoted in the movie, although miscredited. Who is the poem actually by? A. Alexander Pope. B. Pope Alexander. <laughs> C. Frederick Nietzsche. Or D. Howard Mirzwak. It's Alexander Pope. <laughs> it is Alexander Pope. <laughs> <laughs> all right man where can people find you what do you want to promote absolutely um people can find me uh all over the internet which sounds very sketchy but you can find me <laughs> it really does it's not a good way to start anything um you can find me and my podcast dimed out at uh dimed hyphen out.com we're available wherever you get podcasts from and you can follow me directly on twitter and instagram at i am mal foster now you said dimed out is kind of hard to explain to people. Can can you explain why it's hard to explain? <laughs> yeah, I guess because it kind of covers a bit of everything. So I've just finished my first season. I'm currently in in the sort of break between one and two, which is nice. Um, but the first season started off as a personal journal, kind of sort of documenting stuff during the outbreak of COVID, and as something for me to sort of do. Um, after sort of becoming unemployed and then it kind of just became like a looking glass for things that I've had an interest in so like transhumanism different parts of history uh, looking into like mindfulness um, serial killers cults. this sounds up my alley I gotta be honest with you I yeah I, I pay so much attention to movie podcasts I don't venture out enough to other stuff but i'm gonna to have to check this one out <laughs> yeah the general rule is if i find it interesting and i think other people will I'll dig into it so yeah we look at everything from alternative medicines and, and sort of therapies to um 
like obscure weapons from World War Two, all Fantastic. sorts of stuff. Well, I'm glad you enjoy Internal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I really, really appreciate you bringing it to the show because not only was it a great ex- excuse to revisit the movie, uh, although I had seen it once already in the past year, um, it's great to have somebody to talk about this movie with because mm-hmm. it is definitely a movie worth multiple viewings and worth some some decent conversations. So I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Rafe. I appreciate you having me on, man. This was so much fun. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Eternal Sunshine, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talnhess on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook where at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at have not seen this at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. It began in a small town in America. It began in the heart of a young boy and in the faith of an amazing man. He gave up what he did best because of this idea, and I don't think he should be alone. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as it's just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard Entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Mal Foster for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other. Thank you.